Are you ready this morning? Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, we'll look at verses 1 through 11. And last time we were in Philippians, we noted that we live in the age of truth and consequences. And as was true for the saints in Philippi, that being a Roman colony, there to say your loyalties lie with another kingdom would have consequences. So you didn't talk about or stand against Rome. And you certainly didn't say you served a king greater than Caesar because Caesars were often deified. Now, in our day, there are consequences for saying there are two genders, even though there are two genders. There are consequences for saying that God created the heavens and the earth. There are consequences for saying that morality is objective and not subjective. And we learned three things from our four verses last time that came through Paul's admonition that in the midst of truth and consequences, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Now, conduct worthy of the gospel, we need to balance that out lest our mind wander into kind of a works righteousness type of thinking. And the first point we made was that holy living makes us usable, not savable. Listen, you became savable the day you were born because you were born a sinner. And all sinners qualify for salvation. Yes. And listen, we didn't become a sinner the first time we sinned. We prove we're sinners the first time we sinned. No matter how old we were, we were born with a sin nature at birth. And no matter when we started sinning on a regular basis, we were already in need of a Savior. Amen. Holy living just makes us usable. And we all want to be used by God. Amen? Amen. Now, next we were instructed not to be in any way terrified by our adversaries. And we noted that the Greek word translated as adversary, or terrified rather, means and could be used to describe in the Greek language, horses panicking in battle and throwing off their rider and running in fear. Paul says, don't be living like that. Even in the age of truth and consequences, don't approach life with that type of attitude or action. Paul went as far to note that our absence of fear is a powerful message in and of itself. In that us not having fear of speaking the truth, even in the face of consequences, was a reminder that truth is only powerless when unspoken. And listen, if we're going to see people become free indeed, they are made free by the truth that makes free. And we need to be speaking the truth in these last days and not be afraid of people taking an adversarial position towards the gospel of Christ because they've always been with us they just happen to be increasing in number in these last days. But that doesn't change the fact that truth is still making people free. And it doesn't change. And lastly, Paul reminded us that it has been granted to us. Now, we pause for a moment because that is such an unusual way to introduce what he says after that. Because when something is granted to someone, it's usually packaged as something favorable or Someone has granted you the blessing to be part of this or go to that or receive this. Paul says it has been granted to you. In other words, you have received something favorable on behalf of Christ, which is to suffer. Well, I don't know. Suffering, favorable, I don't know. Those two seem to not go together. However, this is exactly what Peter said. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Suffering is part of the Christian experience, and it is por a portion of our likeness to Christ. He suffered. We're going to suffer, right? right? May not be the most popular truth, but it has been granted on our behalf to suffer for Jesus Christ. What was our takeaway? What positive spin could we take out of that? Well, here it is. All suffering is only temporary. Someday it's all going to come to an end. Someday there'll be no hip replacement uh, surgeries. Someday there'll be none of the other things. There'll be no, there are no pandemics in heaven. Amen. And there are no variants in heaven. Nothing varies in heaven except for our uh, method of worshiping God. We may be worshiping him in song and we may like the song I can only imagine. We may be silent before him. We may be dancing before him. Who knows? But we're going to be praising him. Amen. Amen. Now, Paul opens our text this morning with the word therefore, which means in light of what we just learned, here's what to do. Now, we have mentioned that our journey through Philippians is going to be like a, a drive through the spiritual avenue of the giants, that great 
journey up in Northern California through the wonderful redwood groves of California. And I want to use another landmark metaphor in our 11 verses today. And it's not going to be like the Avenue of the Giants in that sense, but rather what we're going to go through today is actually a drive through Monument Valley. Everywhere we look, there are monuments of Scripture in these 11 verses, including the most powerful prophetic statement in the whole Bible. That's in front of us today. Now, I will also say that our text is the perfect follow-up to our introductory message for our word for 2022, which is love, love because love is the why of the what to do's we're going to find in our text today. What Paul is going to deal with is Christian conduct, interactions, and attitudes within the body of Christ. And then he's going to throw down. He's going to use Jesus as the proof. He's going to use Jesus as the model. He's not going to tell us how we are to accomplish such behavioral modifications or adjustments because the how has already been given. The how was given in 119. It's through the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, which is the same spirit that came from the Father, the Holy Spirit, the th uh, third member of the triune Godhead. Now, our topic entitled today is one that's going to require a bit of a shift in our thinking. For whenever we hear one particular word in our title today, we think the opposite of what it actually is, much like a lot of other stuff we hear today. But this is reality. Listen, our title today is The Meek Are the Mighty. The Meek Are the Mighty. Now, we've all heard that meekness is not weakness, and that's true, right? right. But we need to understand that meekness and humility are companions. Meekness is the attribute. Humility is the manifestation of the attribute. And the truth of the matter is, humility is not praised in our world today. It's not promoted in our world today. In the minds of the world, it's the posture of the meek. And they are, therefore, the weak. But I would hope that all of us want to be better Christians in 2022. Yeah, yeah. I know that all of us want to be more powerful Christians in 2022. Yeah. And in much of our world today, the meek or the humble are overlooked or even walked on. And in God's kingdom, meekness and humility are the traits of the powerful and the mighty. Let's prove this before we go any further. Think about Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. There's three uh, human characters in view here. One is extremely powerful in the world sense. The other two are actually powerful in God's economy. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, in the eyes of the world, who was the most powerful in this circle of three? Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of, the, of God. Who were the two most powerful men in this circle of three or this triad? It was Moses and Aaron. They were the ones who were the actual mighty men. And Peter would remind us in 1 Peter 5, 6, therefore, humble yourselves under the, what? Mighty. The mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. I'll point out to you that the mighty hand is the same hand that exalts us, that we're to humble ourselves before. And if you link these two scriptures together, Exodus and 1 Peter 5, 6, think about this. Pharaoh would not humble himself before God. Aaron and Moses already had. Who came out as the more powerful between the three? Moses and Aaron. God exalted the humble over the earthly powerful. And listen, when you humble yourself before God, it's his mighty hand that lifts you up. And if you, as I do, want to live a more effective and powerful Christian life this year, then it starts with a paradigm shift in our thinking, and that begins with recognizing it's the meek that are actually the mighty, because the humble are those who are exalted by God. So you're ready today? Yes. Stand and read with me, please, the first of our three sections, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And Lord, we 
uh, solicit your aid today, not just in understanding, but applying that, which we're going to discover today. We thank you that the entirety of your word is truth. We thank you that it is timeless. We thank you that it is immutable, that what was true when it was written is true today. And therefore, the blessings and benefits of obedience to it or adherence to it are ours to embrace. So, Lord, teach us not just the importance of it. Give us ears to hear it and accept it and apply it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul uses what many commentators have dubbed to be the if clauses, actually the if any clauses. And these come on the heels of the exhortation to walk worthy of the gospel. Now, the reason this is important to pause and point out is that Paul, in this beloved church of Philippi, was seeing that pride was creeping in. So he begins to deal with it immediately. And pride, with all of its actions and inactions, was creeping into this beloved church. And Paul said, let's cut it immediately, cut it off immediately. Now, the if any clauses can be a bit misleading in our thinking if we don't consider that they were written in Greek, in Greek style and grammar used in Paul's day. Now, if any, does not mean there might be some, but not others. It does not mean something is possible. If any in the Greek structure means it is a certainty. And the way we could read it or understand it and look at it, it's as though someone is saying, if anyone ought to have hope, it would be the Christians. Does that mean only some Christians have hope? No, all Christians have hope. It is highlighting the fact that Christians are an exclusive people of hope. And we would better understand what Paul's saying, at least in the English, by using the word since. And Paul is saying, since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort and love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. And what Paul's saying is, let my thoughts, when I think about the church at Philippi, continue to be joyful by hearing that you're like-minded, by hearing that you're loving each other, and being of one accord and mind. Now, the word accord means co-spirited. And uh, some would even render it like-minded, which is already used earlier in the sentence. Now, this is the opposite of the double-mindedness that creates instability in all our ways that James warned us of. And the consistency with Paul's other letters tells us that this is a matter of great concern in any church, including this one. And therefore, it is an enemy of humility, pride that is. Now, in Ephesians 1, 4, 1 to 6, Paul said this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, there's humility, and long-suffering, there's patience, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, this tells us it's going to take effort, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in who? In y'all. Now, Paul says, walk worthy of your calling in Ephesians and then walk worthy of the gospel in Philippians. He starts with humility in Ephesians and he starts with humility in Philippians. He points out unity in Ephesians and he highlights unity in Philippians. And Paul now moves out into what this will manifest itself as practically in our day-to-day lives. He says, and by the way, let is not in the original Greek language. It's an English word accompanied or placed there to help us understand in the proper grammar and all that of English. But it's not in the Greek, and that doesn't diminish the content or context whatsoever. As a matter of fact, if we take let out and read it directly from the Greek, understanding that the word nothing means not even ever one thing, we can understand that what Paul actually says, he didn't say let not, but he says directly not even ever one thing in the church is to be motivated by selfish ambition or, uh, what's the word? Conceit, I'm sorry. (laughs) I lost it there for a minute. Now, he says, but instead of selfish uh, ambition and conceit, do the opposite, esteem others better than ourselves. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the word esteem means to be a leader. 
can mean to be first. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, if you want the church to continue in power, be the first to be looking out for other people. Now, he doesn't say, you know, just don't even care about yourself or do anything to meet your own needs. He says, don't just do that exclusively. Don't just care for your own needs, but also look out for the interests of others. And the point is this. Listen, looking out for ourselves is natural. Looking out for the interests of others is supernatural. And that's something the church ought to share. It ought to be a collective manifestation in every church in every age of church history. Now, listen, here's our first truth about the meek and the mighty within God's economy. And it's kind of a, a play, if you will, on a familiar adage. Listen, the power of humility is revealed through actions, not intentions. The power of humility is revealed through actions, not intentions. After all, we've all heard that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Now, the mention of esteem, meaning to be a leader, is important because leaders are the ones who go first or the ones who go before. And the fact is, this ought to be our lead response to what God has called us to do and, and in light of what he has done for us. We are to <coughs> esteem others as greater than ourselves. In other words, the word is associated with action, not just intention. Now, I mentioned some of my intentions for this year, the things that I wanted to do better at this year. And I just want you to know, I did pretty good this week. I'm batting 500. I had one victory and I had one defeat. And I have to say, and yes, I'm talking about criticizing people's driving. And it just hit me. I'm serious. It hit me in the middle of second service. I didn't even realize it. But the time when I had a victory, Terry was with me. The time that I failed, I was by myself. Now, the defeat was an involuntary reaction. And yes, I reacted to some stunt somebody did while driving. And listen, last week I stated my intentions, but until my intentions became actions, they were just words. Now listen, I spent a lot of years on the road as a salesman. I've driven, I say this without hyperbole, hundreds of thousands of miles. Before that, I drove uh, in a lumber mill, uh, all kinds of different equipment, and I spent most of the time uh, driving backwards because I had a big load in front of me, and I'd have to drive backwards for miles and miles and hours and hours. And, you know, Terry and I have a little saying. I often back down our street, which is a little bit lengthy, but I back all the way down it into the driveway and, uh, you know, because she has mentioned at times that I'm a good backer-upper. <laughs> and, and the reason she said I'm a good backer-upper is because I told her I was. <laughs> but listen, the other day, there was somebody who did something dumb, and I, I consciously caught myself forming words. And I didn't say anything. And I kept silent. Because, hey, I committed to this before you, but most importantly, this needs to change in me. I can't be spewing things out about people's driving just because I don't like it or it doesn't agree with my style. But then the other time when I was by myself, I'm coming out of the grocery store. I had actually um, had uh, some energy and strength and thought, man, I'm getting out. This, this cabin fever is driving me nuts. I'm going to go to the store. I ran down to the store. And uh, on my way out, there's a little four-way stop there. And on the other end of that four-way stop is a notoriously long signal light that you don't ever want to get caught at. So I'm coming up to this light from my direction. There's a guy coming from my right. I see him speed up because he wants to be in front of me. And he actually runs the stop sign to get in front of me and then does two miles an hour up to this stale green light. Well, I expressed my opinion about this and about his character. Unbeknownst to him, I proclaimed him an idiot from the driver's seat in my car. Now. I yelled at him. I admit it. But listen, and just, I want you to know, idiot is not a cuss word. I don't cuss. So don't go away saying, you know, the pastor cussed at somebody. I did not. I called him an idiot. But listen, what I've been thinking about since then, and the reason I shared about my driving experience is because I realized, as far as driving is concerned, I'm a legend in my own mind. But the fact of the matter is, we're not to even ever let 
one thing that smacks of selfish ambition or conceit be a part of our lives as Christians. Now, you may be thinking, oh, you know, it's kind of a corny illustration because, I mean, that's really not that big a deal. Well, let me tell you something. If you can't master the little stuff, you'll never master the big. And this is not a big thing. And I'm still going to heaven. Even though I criticize and critique people's driving. I'm still going to heaven. I'm still born again. Amen. Amen. But you know what? I need to get on top of this. I need to, to do what Terry does that drives me nuts. Somebody, you know, this guy pulls out in front of me. I need to not just be quiet. I need to think like, gosh, you know, maybe, maybe he got a phone call and there's an emergency. Maybe he's doing two miles an hour because he's having car trouble. I don't go there. I go straight to idiot. And I, and I might be right. But you know what? I need to change the thinking. Because that thinking is going to impact how I think about other things that are much more important and much bigger. And we have to master these things. And that's why Paul uses such strong language here. Not even ever anything that smacks of selfish ambition or conceit is to be part of the body of Christ. Now, think about this. I, 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 I laughed in both services, and I'll probably laugh here. But Numbers 12.3 says, now, the man Moses was very humble. <laughs> Moses wrote that. <laughs> the man Moses was very humble. Now, some say this was added later, but, man, it's early in numbers. I don't know. More than all the men who were on the face of the earth. But you know what? That's not the point. The point is not that Moses wrote that or held the pen as he did the other five uh, first books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, because we know them. But the fact is, we have to ask the question, did God manifest his power greatly through Moses? So we have great manifestations of power and great humility connected together. And therefore, we need to connect them together as well. And this is what Paul is saying. And remember when King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel, who had previously interpreted a dream that all the lords of the king couldn't do, and the king said, you know, I had this dream. Tell me what it means. Daniel said, you're full of pride. God's going to humble you for seven years. Your hair is going to look like eagle's feathers and your toenails and uh, fingernails are going to look like bird claws. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, thanks for that. And a year later, Nebuchadnezzar's out surveying his kingdom. Now, mind you, Daniel had already told Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 regarding the statue he saw of lesser grades of metals with the head being gold. He said, Daniel already told him, God's telling you, Nebi, you're the head of gold. You've got a kingdom unlike any other. And God has given it to you. And God is the one that has blessed you. And then a year after uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, man, you're going to get all messed up for seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar was surveying the kingdom and said, look at all that my hand has built. Boom, idiot for seven years. Totally crazy for seven years. Instantly, what was God doing? He was humbling him. You know what happened after the humbling? Check this out. Daniel 4, 34 to 37. At the end of the time, at the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now listen to this declaration. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you, what have you done? At the same time, after this declaration of the greatness of God, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom. And listen to this. Excellent majesty was what? Added. Added. In other words, his latter kingdom was better than it was before he was humbled. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he's able to make into a looney tune. Loose paraphrase there. Now, listen, 
Many commentators have stated, and I would heartily agree, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven because this is a profession of a believer. And I believe that uh, these are things that God will often do in our lives to get us to get on our knees and confess that he is the king of kings and we're not. And he builds our kingdoms and we don't. And he does what he wants, even if we don't agree with it, like it, or it's culturally something that's unacceptable. Listen, God is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And he is superior over all things. And this is the declaration that Nebuchadnezzar is making. I think we're going to see him in heaven. I think that that's a, a great and beautiful picture of who God is. And it was after Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God that his understanding and reason returned. His kingdom was restored. And it was after he was humbled that excellent majesty was added to him. This is the old, the Lord saying to Nebuchadnezzar, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. What did Nebi choose? He chose the hard way. Listen, let's take the easy way. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and let him lift us up. Now listen, <clears throat> before we move on, part of living worthy of the gospel is to live in humility. Not humiliation, to live in humility. Because the fact is, you can be a person in the eyes of the world of great fame and still be humble. You can be a person on this earth of great earthly importance and still be humble. <clears throat> Excuse me, as a matter of fact, think about the relatively few who meet those criteria and think about the weight of their words over the self-promoter. Somebody who actually is powerful and humble is somebody that people listen to. And listen, this is true for us as well. But we have to also have to remember that if you want to be a person of power in God's kingdom, it will never happen through trying to become one. It only happens by being humble and esteeming others and serving others over ourselves. Let's look at five through eight. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Paul starts dropping the bombs here. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, Paul, having called us to esteeming others better than ourselves, looking out for the interests of others and not just our own, cites the highest and loftiest of examples to make his case, the Lord Jesus himself. He says, first of all, this is how Jesus thought, and this is how we should think. And I'm paraphrasing here, but what Paul says in essence is this, Jesus would have done no injustice whatsoever by requiring humanity treat him like God, because he is. There was no robbery in him equating himself to God or being equal with God. He is God. Amen. And he, it wouldn't have been wrong for him to say, you know what, I'm God. And I spoke all this into existence. And you need to treat me like I'm God. Paul's saying that wouldn't have been wrong on Jesus' part. He says, and remember our example is Jesus of walking humbly. He says, but he didn't do that instead he made himself of no reputation. In other words, he didn't use his rightful position to his advantage. But instead, he took the lowly position, not just of a mere man, but of a slave on top of that. He, the creator of all life, humbled himself to the point of accepting death, even the death of a cross. And in Galatians 3.13, we're told Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And listen, one thing for us to realize from this is that it sets the bar of humility pretty high because Jesus is the example. But it also places humility pretty low as far as how low we should go in humbling ourselves because he went from the king of heaven to the humblest of servants among humans. This is what Jesus did. And Paul said, you know what? If you're going to be effective, then you need to think like that. 
If you're going to walk worthy of the gospel, you need to think like that. I need to think like that. And then the context, context of our verses, that means that we are not to be a people that esteem ourselves as better than everybody else. And again, this is in the context of the church and how we treat each other. And this doesn't mean that we can treat non-believers as lesser beings or look at them with a holier-than-thou attitude. We learned that last week about love in uh, Luke 6.35. Love your enemies, do good, lend, hope for nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to thee. What's it say? Unthankful and the evil. Should we be too? Hello? Should we be too? Absolutely. Let the mind of Christ be in you and that be your thinking. And the reason I pointed that out is because there are some who say Christians should just take whatever comes. They should accept all abuse, no matter the reason or cause. We are, in essence, the world's formats, and people should just simply walk over us. Well, first of all, Paul wouldn't agree with that. He uses Roman citizenship to grab his own freedom, or at least for the moment to, get, uh, to stop them from beating him to death. And listen, I had a pastor one time. We, we all got kind of hoodwinked into a uh, gun control meeting that uh, none of us knew. There were about 50 of us pastors there. None of us knew what this was all about. We kind of got duped into it. And I had a pastor yell at me for saying, in front of 50 other pastors, including some names that you would know, yell at me for saying we have the right to defend ourselves. Now listen, I, you know, I was a police chaplain for 19 years. I've seen some stuff. I've seen how some people act, and there were some scenes where, you know, I remember one time they were after some gangbanger who was armed, and uh, they had the place surrounded. They had the apartment complex that this guy was running around in surrounded, and, uh, you know, the guy, the sergeant out there, he said, Chaplain, you go over there and guard that gate. Uh, I got a mag light. <laughs> you got guns. I got a mag light, and you want me to guard against this gangbanger who's running around armed and you're trying to catch him. Well, the first thing I'm thinking is, I hope he goes out a different gate. <laughs> well, listen, this guy yelled at me because I said we have a right to defend ourselves, and this was his argument. Jesus died. Yeah. He died to save sinners. And I told the host of the meeting afterward, you know what you need to understand? is there is a difference between dying for your wallet and dying for your witness. Right. And dying for your wallet is not dying for Jesus' sake. Right. It's dying because somebody's robbing from you. Yeah. And we have the right to defend ourselves. As a matter of fact, Jesus, having sent the 12 out one time, he said, you know what, don't take a bag with you. Don't take an extra shirt or cloak. Don't take anything with you. I'm going to provide for you. Yeah. Now, after the Last Supper, he told them again, I'm sending you out again. Didn't everything I tell you that was going to happen last time happen? They said, yep. He said, well, I'm telling you this time, if you don't have a sword, sell your jacket and go buy a sword because you know, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And they came back to Jesus and said, well, there's two swords among us. He said, that's enough. You know why they needed that? Because they needed to be able to defend themselves against thieves and robbers because right. he was sending them out into a corrupt world with a perfect message. And people were going to attack them and assault them in ways that would not be for his namesake. Right. It would be for the sake of taking what they had. And this guy, again, at this meeting, screams at me. He said, that's figurative. Figurative? Jesus said, don't take any money or an extra cloak or sandals with you on the first trip. That wasn't figurative. That was literal. He's talking to the same people, and it's the same person talking. And he's talking about the same kind of sending. So how can the first one be figurative, or the first one be literal, and the second one figurative? It doesn't make any sense. Listen, we have a right to defend ourselves. Yes. And we are not taking sign-ups for NRA afterwards. That wasn't the point of this. The, the reason I wanted to point this all out to you is this. Paul is not saying if you let people kill you who want to, you're going to be like Jesus. The point of this, the context of this is humility. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying our point is humility requires divine power. Walking in the flesh does not. Humility requires divine power. Walking in the flesh does not. You see, this is why the meek are the mighty. Selfish ambition and conceit are of the flesh. And they are limited to the power of human flesh. And they can only and always be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And this is why Paul would say to the church in Corinth in 10, 3, and 4 of the second letter, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against the flesh. We uh, wrestle against principalities and powers. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down what? You, you know, there's two strongholds in our passage today. You know what they are? Selfish ambition and conceit. And the Lord says, I've, get, I've weaponized you through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to pull those things down. And we need this more so than ever before. You know, I was thinking uh, this morning, do you remember um, back in the good old days? I don't know when they started. I didn't know when they ended, but we always talk about them, right? The good old days. You remember the good old days where we used to take pictures of stuff? Yeah. You remember that? You take pictures of places we visited and water and birds and, you know, just awesome things. And we don't do that anymore. You know what we do now? <laughs> Who are we taking pictures of? Self. We live in the age of selfies. We live in the age of the participation trophy. I participated. I get a trophy. We live in the me first generation when the Bible says, listen, it's not you first. It's others first and yourself last. And this isn't going to be warmly received by our flesh. And therefore, it has to be accompanied by divine power. And remember, Jesus despised the shame of the cross, but there was a greater joy set before him, found through the humbling of himself, surrendering his body to be beaten, and even to the death of the cross, uh, of a cross. But the fact is, you know what he could have done? He could have spoken those who were nailing him to it out of existence with one word. Gone. Would they have been gone? Did he do that? What did he do? He took the humble position. He humbled himself. He allowed them to do that. And this is why he would teach his disciples in Matthew 16, 24 to 27. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, whoever puts his own life first will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or... What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to what? His works. Listen, it takes no divine power whatsoever to put yourself first. It's our default behavior. It's what we always think about. It's what we always do with ease. That's the flesh's natural direction. And the fact that Paul starts, with the, starts the illustration with the mind tells us that humility is a conscious decision. And we also need to remember what he said in verse 5 and also in 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Christ. And listen, therefore, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Humility requires divine power. Walking in the flesh does not. And we have the mind of Christ and with lowliness of mind, we should be esteeming others better than ourselves and looking out for their interests, not just our own. After all, Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, here's where all this has taken us. That, and we're not done, by the way, in case you thought it was closing. That was a faux close. That wasn't a real close. Now, what it tells us is this. As we face our situations and circumstances in life, we never need to ask, should I take the humble position? The answer is always yes. Humble, why is it so quiet? <laughs> the answer is always yes. We humble ourselves. Now, let's look at 9 through 11. You ready for the final drive through Monument Valley? <laughs> Listen to this. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name at which, is above, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, meaning the living and the dead, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Somebody say, wow. wow. Now, confess means to see as or speak of as the same. To see that Jesus is Lord is going to be confessed by everyone someday. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will make that confession. This is the monument of all monument, monuments in Scripture because it tells us of the future. It tells us the results of taking the humble attitude in place in life. 
Jesus humbled himself as low as a Jew could humble themselves. First of all, he was a servant. Secondly, he was hung on a tree. And he became, therefore, a curse for us. But because of the way he humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. He went from the ultimate depth of humility to the pinnacle of exaltation. And Jesus had a glory and equality he shared with the Father and Spirit from eternity past. And this is speaking of Jesus in his humanity as the God-man, God with us. And our title could not be more magnificently endorsed than by these verses. Jesus humbled himself and his name was exalted above every other name. Someday every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, it doesn't that make you want to shout. Yes. No. Listen to how King David and other psalmists viewed humility before God and its importance. In Psalm 10, 17 and 18, David said, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. All this oppression is someday going to end. Amen? Amen. Psalm 18, 26 and 27, David says again, With the pure you will show yourselves pure, and with the devious you will show yourselves shrewd. For you will save the humble people. You will bring down haughty looks. Now listen to what he says in 25, 9 and 10 of the Psalms. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Other psalmists agree. 147, 6 says the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts down the wicked to the ground. 149, 4, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Now get this. He will beautify who? The humble. He's saying the humble are his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Now, this brings us to our final point in our drive through Monument Valley, and that's just this. You ready? Yes. Humbling ourselves exalts the name of Jesus. Yes. It doesn't matter why we feel or what we feel or what we think or how wrong someone else may have been legitimately or how right we think we are or how better we think we drive than everybody else or whatever else. When we humble ourselves, Christ is exalted. Yes. And someday every knee will bow. Someday every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. And this is wonderful. This is amazing. You know what else it is? It's catastrophic. You know why? Because some are going to bow. Billions are going to bow in Revelation 20, 11 to 5. John said, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no more place for them. John said, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into what? The lake of fire. Here's the scene where the non-believer is going to have to say, he is the Lord. He is the king of kings. And I can't stop my sentence or reverse it. This is not just wonderful, and it is. This is not just an amazing proclamation, and it is. This isn't just something we ought to look forward to that day. This is catastrophic, and therefore, while we can rejoice in the fact that someday we'll all, acknowledge, all will acknowledge what we already know to be true, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, but billions upon billions will make that confession by force at their sentencing to eternal damnation in hell. I mean, that's the reality, right? So what's our job? Get people to make the confession now. Get people to agree that Jesus Christ is the Lord now. How do we do that? Well, Jesus made himself of no reputation. He came as a child in a manger to a working class family, not a royal one. And the truth is, he never did one miracle for his own benefit. Everything he did, he did for other people. 
I mean, think about the temptation in the wilderness. He didn't eat or drink for 40 days. You think he might be thirsty? Think he might be hungry? What did Satan say? Hey, you're God. Turn those stones into bread. What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, he wasn't about to do something for his own sake or benefit. Everything he ever did was for other people. Paul said, think like that. Because that's the mind of Christ. Think like that. All that we do is for the sake of other people, especially in the sense of them coming to know that Christ is Lord and making the confession that Jesus is Lord in the here and now, not the hereafter. Now, in John 2, 13 to 16, we're told about the Passover of the Jews being at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Do you think he's mad? Hello? It's not a sin to say Jesus was mad. He was mad. He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And listen, Here's what we need to understand today. The only time Jesus took such aggressive action, either physically or verbally, is when the way to heaven was being misrepresented. And that's the same mind we need to have today. And I say this for this reason. Too often we treat Christians like uh, we're supposed to treat the world and we treat the world like we're supposed to treat Christians. Too often, often we have a lack of compassion and mercy for those who are perishing. And the ones we are supposed to say, hey, you know what? You're a Christian, bro. You ought not to be let that, letting that flood of filth come from your mouth. We don't say that to them, but we say that to the non-believer. Listen, the job of the sinner is to sin. They can't help it. You cannot change who you are until you know Jesus. Amen. And have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. Now listen, we've got so many things backwards, and they all start with what John, uh, Paul said here about Jesus. Think like he did. Always putting other people's needs ahead of your own. And listen, this, this is the key to walking in power in these last days. And listen, if we're going to get aggressive in any way, we need to get aggressive about the message of the gospel and proclaiming it to this lost and dying world. And listen, in Luke 18, 9 to 14, and we'll wrap up with this maybe. Jesus spoke this parable now listen to this to some who trusted in who? in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others two men went up to the temple to pray Jesus said one was a Pharisee the other a tax collector remember tax collectors gathered money for the Roman Empire they were hated, despised especially by the Jews so this was a hated man And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. You want me to uh, compact what he prayed? He said, God, I thank you. I'm better than everybody else. And then he said, you know, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And a tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house. What? Justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be Exalted. Listen, humility exalts the name of Jesus. Pride exalts ourself. One is like Jesus. The other is nothing like him. One, he receives glory. The other, he does not. One leads some to make the confession that he is the Lord. The other leads to the church being viewed as a pack of thieves. You know, that's what we're thought of in much of the world today. As charlatans, listen, when you've got knuckleheads that get mad because somebody underestimated their wealth as a pastor as being short of a billion dollars and saying they're only worth 700 million. Uh, that, ha- that actually happened, by the way. What do you think the world is thinking? You know, man, those Christians, they're all right. 
You know, there, there's this billionaire pastor who's got his own airport, multiple jets, and all these other things. Man, maybe I need to become a Christian too. And then it doesn't happen for them. And what happens? I don't want anything to do with it. This is too hard. People get mad at you and yell at you for, and think you're goofball for going to church and all these other things. And listen, we're not to be viewed as a den of thieves. And we need to stand up against such things. And we need to do so remembering that the humble are the mighty. For the one who is mighty to save humbled himself even unto death, even the death of the cross. And that act of humility has saved untold millions and is still saving them today. And listen, our humility will lead others to him. Because our humility is absolute proof that we are not of this world. Because the world's full of pride. The world's taking selfies. The church is to be telling people about Jesus and doing whatever it is we can to help them come to know him. Somebody say amen. Amen. And Father, we are grateful for your word again this morning. We thank you uh, that Paul, as he often does, uh, took the gloves off a bit and and even challenged our thinking and uh, raised the standard and bar, explained humility through the person of Christ and the act of the cross and and Lord, I pray that we would hold that up as a unit of measure against our own behaviors. That, Lord, we wouldn't fall apart when we're attacked or insulted or any of these other things. We certainly wouldn't flee like a horse running from battle uh, or be terrified as uh, he told us not to be in any way. But Lord, I pray especially that we would take away uh, what our behavior by the power of the Spirit is to look like and to remember that the meek are the mighty. And we are not measured by this world's system and measure of success. And Lord, I pray that we would all hunger for the power to be witnesses. And that anything we do, even when we're in the car by ourselves, Lord, that we wouldn't be a different person than we are when we're around others. And Lord, I just pray, God, that you would sweep through our hearts and minds uh, the things we read today, especially about the confession of Jesus as Lord and the catastrophic consequences of making that after you're dead. And Lord, I pray that would motivate us to go out and tell anyone and everyone that you are the Lord and you're willing to save even now. And we thank you for the things that we have encountered today. We thank you for the the great blessings of studying your word. And help us, Lord, to go and do that which we heard, not just be hearers of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.